0: ACT has helped me to be a better human being. I didn't know how to dance with my own struggles, with my own fears, with my own pain. It's easy to think of ACT as a technique. Everyone can deliver a diffusion technique as an exercise, um, but psychological flexibility is more than techniques. And modeling and shaping how we're related to our own pain, I think that requires constant, constant dancing, right? Um so I think I, I think that's a very very complex uh, skill and I don't think happens from one day to another day I think it's a process.
1: That was Dr. Z and this is mentally flexible. Welcome to Mentally Flexible, where we have meaningful conversations to help you build mental flexibility. I'm Tom Parks. I'm a licensed psychotherapist. And in each episode, I'll be talking to people who inspire me most on topics related to psychology, mental health, and creativity. My hope is that through these conversations, you'll better understand yourself, others, and the world around you. Thanks for being here, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. My guest today is Dr. Patricia Zarita Ona, commonly known as Dr. Z. Dr. Z is a clinical psychologist who specializes in working with individuals with OCD, anxiety, and emotion regulation problems. Dr. Z is the founder of East Bay Behavior Therapy Center, where she runs an intensive outpatient program integrating acceptance and commitment therapy and exposure and response prevention. Dr. Z has also written a number of really great mental health workbooks that I suggest you check out. We touch on this in the episode. Some other areas we explore in the episode include our interviews with Stephen Hayes, how Dr. Z found her way to act, how act and exposure have been useful for Dr. Z personally, her early life in Bolivia and how it shaped her worldview, and how act can be used to treat OCD. This was a really great episode, and I'm so glad I got to connect with Dr. Z. And thank you all for being here and listening to the podcast. It really means a lot to me. If it's your first time listening, welcome. If you'd like to support the podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you subscribed and left a review on iTunes. This is one of the most helpful ways for me to be able to book new guests. And you can also follow me on Instagram at Mentally Flexible to get updates and to get some more bonus content. Okay, well, now without any further delay... Here is my conversation with Doctor Z. You're in California, right?
0: Yes, um, I am across the Bay Area, basically. I am in this. Uh, I live in this city that is called Emeryville.
1: Hmm.
0: It's a very a small town, very low key, unpretentious, um, uh, but you have access to everything, right? So I like that.
1: Yeah, I've been out in the Bay Area a couple of times. It's really nice.
0: It's really, you know, I feel very grateful for living in this area because you can go to nature anytime, to the mountains, to the ocean, um, to the desert, right? So I think that's that's a fun thing to have.
1: Yeah, I got to explore that area by bicycle one time. So
0: <laughs> Really?
1: Yeah.
0: Where did you bike?
1: I started in Berkeley and then I ended up in San Diego.
0: My goodness, that's amazing! Yeah. That's amazing. Did you rode your bike all the way from Berkeley to San Diego? Yeah. Oh my goodness! Wow. In, in one
1: in one day? No, I'm just
0: kidding. <laughs> <What>? That's not. <laughs> 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 what? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds amazing, though. That sounds yeah. amazing. Such an adventure.
1: Yeah, it was. Uh, that was my first time ever being in California, so it was such a surreal way to get to get to know it and be along the coast the whole time. And, um, it was really fun.
0: Wow. That sounds amazing. That sounds inspiring. I actually, during COVID, I got a bike and I have been biking. Um, I think at the most, I may be biking like five, six miles right a day. Um, but it's so much fun. It's just such a different way to explore an area, right? Like I think I become an addict to the bike right now.
1: Yeah, it's fun. It's a really cool activity because you can, you can actually go pretty good distances and see different things, but in a much faster way than you would be able to walk or run, but you're not in a car, so you're not contained. It's, it's a really, it's a really cool thing.
0: It does. I think, um, I feel sometimes you can, um, travel light when you are riding the bike, right? It's not this heavy equipment, um, it's just it just fun. So kudos to you for just writing all the way. my gosh, impressive uh-huh. <laughs> That's impressive
1: <laughs> yeah, I think it's more impressive on paper than in reality. it's a lot less glamorous when you're like wiping yourself down with baby wipes and you can't find out <laughs> you can't find where to camp <laughs> and it's getting dark and you don't know where you're gonna get food and you know
0: <laughs> you know i I get that. I get that. I think. Yeah, that real experience, like being sweaty, being dirty, right? <laughs> but that comes with sweet memories, right? Of being on the coast and the yeah. ocean. So I think that's, yeah, it's a, it's a nice, it's, I think it's a nice experience. Kudos to you again.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, kind of like in the ACT approach, the, life is a mix of emotions and experiences, positive and negative, and that's what gives it its richness, the contrast.
0: It is, it is. I think there is something about really savoring every moment we have. Uh, And I think sometimes some experiences help us more with that. Like biking is such a sensory way of experiencing the world too, right? Coordinating your bodies, the smells, um, what you see, what you hear. So I think it's a very, yeah, it's a very unique um, combination of many layers of what we live.
1: Yeah, when I, when I interviewed Steve Hayes on my podcast, he used biking as a metaphor for what we're doing in life of constantly like coming out of balance and back into balance and over and over again. And um, wow. Yeah. That's,
0: that's cool. That's cool. Somehow I missed an interview. I hear your other interviews, but I miss uh, that one with Steve. What's wrong with me? <laughs>
1: <laughs> he was episode number one, which was really cool.
0: I will check it out. I will definitely um, check it out.
1: Well, speaking of interviews with Steve Hayes, actually on my way into the office here, I was listening to yours with Steve Hayes and that was really great. I loved
0: it. Oh, oh, thank you. You know, it's really, Juan. I feel so grateful to him. He's such a kind human being and such a bright man. And for me, it was the beginning of a trying to interview someone in this new format right? doing a podcast. Um, But I think it was a really sweet conversation. It was a very sweet conversation. And the feeling I have is I think it's a lot of appreciation for who he is in the world.
1: Yes. Yeah. And I love how he was willing to be kind of open and vulnerable about his own suffering and life history. And I heard him tell stories I've never heard him tell before. So... You got a really good side of him in that interview.
0: You know, I think what was interesting is that, um, and, and you know, actually that, that conversation was longer than what I put out there, right? Because we were doing a little bit what you and I were doing, right? And when we started talking about how he knew Skinner and Lazarus, right, and all those guys, it was such a cool shift, right? From talking about his fame to looking at, he really has been exposed to incredible people, right? And hanging out with them and then going to Est, right? Uh, I think it was a very rich conversation, right? I wish I could put everything out there, but I was having audio problems. There was background noise. I'm like, oh boy.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's kind of just for you then. And I have 20 minutes of, uh, conversation with, with him that I didn't end up releasing to. And part of me wants to like add a little bonus episode or something. And then another part of me is like, you know what, that's just kind of, kind of sweet that I have this personal conversation that no one else is going to hear.
0: That That's how it felt. Right. I think there is this, um, I wanted to put everything, but the quality wasn't good and that's hard. Right. Um, but at the end, I think, and yeah, when I look back, it was such a rich, sweet moment. I just feel so grateful I had that morning with him. And um, it was fulfilling as it is, right?
1: Yeah. How did you stumble into ACT in your life?
0: Well, that's, do you want the Latino version? Do you want the American version? (laughs) (laughs) You pick. (laughs) Okay, I will give you an in-between version. (laughs) Um, Hundreds of years ago, in my second year of grad school, my mentor Matt McKay came back and he was so invigorated because he attended a workshop from Kelly Wilson. Mm. And he, you know, this was a very small class. Every Monday we sat together for three, four hours. And when you're learning all the nitty gritty skills of doing therapy, we're doing a lot of role plays presenting cases. So it's a very intimate space. Um, so he came back extremely excited and he said, this is the new thing. You guys have to learn about ACT. This is going to just shake a lot of the things that we know. You have to have the experience. I cannot tell you what's about because you have to go and attend a workshop. Mm-hmm. And that was the beginning. I got, I got curious. I got curious. And um, I think that year I traveled a couple of times to Mississippi. Mississippi to Kelly Wilson's workshop. And it was such a unique experience because you land in Mississippi, his grad students are there in the airport, they are picking you up, and they are driving out there, right? <laughs> We're going to this retreat home, right? Um, and I remember, you know, my first workshops, I, I, I felt confused um, because every single thing I knew about cognitive behavior therapy, didn't relate to what I was listening to. And at the beginning also I tried to understand act or what act is with my mind, trying to rationalize in needed to make sense logically. Um and of course I didn't go anywhere, right? I was like the person raising the hand but wow, we kind of challenge that, right? But which research says that? And then maybe by the third or fourth workshop. I remember one time when I say, I'm just going to try to stop thinking about it and just see what shows up. Um, And that was really like the, the beginning for me, the shift of experiencing psychological flexibility in a micro dosage without forcing it, without pushing it, without trying to make sense of it, but just simply watching what comes. And that was, I think, yeah, it really was like the shift. And after that, I started attending many workshops, many of the boot camps, read all the books that have been out there. Um, and I have to say that over the years, over the years, act has helped me to be a better human being. I think I was an okay person before. Uh, But I think I didn't know how to dance with my own struggles, with my own fears, with my own pain. And ACT gave me that, which I didn't have. So Mm. I think professionally and clinically has been an incredible experience. Um, And it took me a lot of years to learn the model. It wasn't a, you know, it's not a model that you read one book and you know it. It's not a model that you attend one boot camp and you know it. So I think for me, the joke is that it took me maybe seven to 10 years to really grasp what it is and to, to, to live life with that frame, right? Um, it was maybe a slow process in comparison to others, but I think it's easy to think of act as a technique. Everyone can deliver a diffusion technique as an exercise, um, but psychological flexibility is more than techniques. And modeling mm. and shaping how we're relating to our own pain. I think that requires constant constant dancing, right? Um so I think I think that's a very, very complex skill. And I don't think it happens from one day to another day. I think it's a process.
1: Yes. Yeah, it's something that happens in motion experientially.
0: Yeah. 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 How yeah. how did you get into ACT?
1: I, I think I was first introduced to ACT very early in my career, my first job after undergrad when I was working at a community center for youth in the juvenile justice system, and they would send oh. us to a lot of trainings and they sent us to a a training on CBT. And the <laughs> trainer, I remember, was going through CBT and then he just for like five minutes touched on ACT, mm. and he kind of presented it. He was a very, you know, without judgment, he was a very sort of more traditional CBT Person, So when he talked about act, he kind of talked about it in almost a, like, like it was, it wasn't as good as CBT, you know, like it was just (laughs) like this, like wishy-washy or woo-woo type of thing. And, um, and I remember when he explained it, I was like, oh man, like this is right on, like, this is how I live my life. Mm -hmm. Like, obviously not to perfection and not to every day, but that basic model of, being the observer of your thoughts and opening up Mm -hmm. to your emotions and letting what's important to you guide how you live. I realized I had been going through that journey without knowing what ACT was for a while. And so when I, when that linked up, something really resonated with me. And, um, and then years later, as I went through grad school and got into doing more clinical work and I just like got so obsessed and absorbed in, in ACT stuff and taking trainings and reading books and yeah.
0: That's incredible. That's incredible. Right. I think, so in Bolivia, I went, I went to um, a program on a school psychology and it was heavy on cognitive psychology, a lot of behaviors, but uh, under the umbrella of cognitive psychology. So I was one of those therapists doing my thought logs, looking for <laughs> evidence for, <laughs> evidence against, right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I relate to what you're saying, that if you have come from a very traditional, hardcore second wave, like cognitive behavior therapy, it feels like, what is this thing, right? It's you know too much tutti fruity. <laughs> <laughs> so I get it, I, I totally get that.
1: <laughs> wow. So yeah, so you're from Bolivia originally, right?
0: That's right. Bolivia, yeah. yeah.
1: And you were studying psychology already while you were still in Bolivia?
0: Yeah, yeah, basically um I this it's a very interesting story but I went to a psychology program in the in the city in Bolivia called Cochabamba mm. and There was only one behavioral analyst among all the instructors. Everyone was doing psychoanalysis. There was a huge wave of people following Sigmund Freud, Melanie Klein, that basically migrated from New York to South America, to Argentina, to Chile, Peru, Bolivia. So that year, it was mandated that all the students they have to be in psychoanalysis for one year. So for yeah. one year, every Friday, I went to the, see this therapist that barely say anything, <laughs> barely move an eyebrow. Right? It was such a <laughs> such a odd experience. I I remember there was one time when I think he was drinking water. And he slipped water on his shirt. It was the first time when I saw like a reaction, a human reaction, right? (laughs) So so my first year, it was just really, really hard. I was trying to collaborate with this professor that was trained by Albert Bandura, a hardcore behaviorist, Uh, but it's only one instructor among, you know, 50 of them, right? The rest of the classes were heavy into psychoanalysis and dream analysis, right? Um, So that was really, really hard because it never felt, um, it never related to the experience in which I look at people and how I see the world. Um, Mm. It's extremely pathologizing and extremely hierarchical. Um, I also find that it's very disrespectful with women many times. Um, Mm. So for one year, I suffered with that. And at the end of the year, it was very clear that it wasn't for me. I was going to be extremely unhappy. So then I switched, and there was one program that had more cognitive psychology embedded, right, through the whole program, and that was a school psychology. Um, I ended up after that doing a master's in a strategic planning for um, educational projects. That was interesting. Um, but then when I came to the States in 2001, then I started a year later, I started grad school and mm. that's where I got all the doctoral training. I think in, um, yeah, for working with anxiety, phobia, panics, OCD and everything.
1: Mm. Did you grow up with Spanish as your primary language?
0: Yes, 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 mm. absolutely. Yeah.
1: When did you, when did you start speaking English? Was it taught when you were young or was that later on?
0: That's a great, great question. Um, (laughs) It's a great question because yesterday I was listening to myself and I was wondering, am I sounding like Arnold Schwarzenegger these days? (laughs) 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 I was just wondering that. (laughs) So basically, in high school, I, I studied German. And then during college, I had to, I chose English for the language that you have to study. And for maybe like six years, right, I took all these English classes, reading a book, doing role plays, right? It sounded really good. I passed the test. And then in 2001, mid-June, I, you know, took a plane. I was in Miami. I remember that this large door opens in the airport. And then I tried to talk to people forget it. People had a slow. What what, what happened, right? (laughs) Because I learned English from books, right? And you learn it from books and from movies, right? But it's very different when you're talking to people, right? A strict talk is very different. Idiomatic expressions are very different. Um, So my first two years were hard, very, very hard with English. I... um, At the beginning, for my first six months, I cried almost every day because I couldn't. I couldn't understand. It was I was working dry, and I had like I think proficient English to be doing what I was doing. I was running a class for kids with uh, neurocognitive disorders, so it was more technical a little bit, and that was fine, right? But you don't, you cannot be, you cannot fully be yourself if if you have the language skills, right? So I think for me, my first six months, it was just, oh my gosh, you know, crying every day. Um, And then after that, slowly, slowly, I start feeling more comfortable with the language. And and then group conversations used to be hard because group conversations go really, really, really fast, right? Um, So that was interesting for me to immerse myself in a group conversation and then when I went to graduate school, of course, I had a long list of thoughts. Who is going to come to see me as a therapist with my accent? I am going to be a failure. Who would like to, you know, come to see me if I, I cannot understand very well what they are saying? Um, so there was a lot of working through those fears. Um, I did actually, I went to see a cognitive behavior therapist for maybe, I think, three months, four months. I was very fortunate because he was very heavy on exposure. And that's what I did. I started doing these micro exposures to manage these fears about coming across as a as a stupid or coming across as a fool, right? Um, and then the rest is history, right? These days I have learned that that communicating is more than having the perfect words or the yes. perfect uh, language skills, right? There is so much more that comes when you are communicating with people. So that story is stories in the background.
1: Yeah. Yeah I mean the reason why I asked asked is because I have so much respect and admiration for you and being oh. in a profession that is so conversation and communication oriented with English as your second language like I could not imagine that that must just have been so difficult and <laughs> to be now like it's such a wonderful communicator and your ability to convey these ideas and share stories like I just could not imagine being in your shoes going through that and it's really impressive.
0: Yeah, you're, you're very kind. You're very kind. Thank you. I think it was definitely rocky at the beginning. Definitely rocky, but um but I think that's what act was very very I think helpful to me in many ways, right? Because I remember when I had all these narratives, who will come to see me, right? What if they think I cannot understand their struggles? Um, and I was doing mis- my, my own exposures, right? At some point, right, there is these questions about why you are doing this. Why do you want to go to grad school? What's so important about it? Um and when I answer those questions, I have always been clear. I am extremely passionate for guiding people to make micro changes and to guide them in that process, right? Yes. Um, and that, that to me gives me this very sweet sense of vitality, right? Doing therapy or doing some coaching for me, is very energizing. And once I tap into that, then I know that all the struggle is worth it. Whatever mm. comes, will come. Sometimes it's great. Sometimes, you know, it's very imperfect. But when you tap into what's really behind what you're trying to do, you kind of go back to always ways of being in the world. You just yeah. found, you know, it, did you watch the movie Soul? Mm-mm. I will highly recommend that. It's a new Pixar movie. Super, super sweet. But in the movie, one of the themes is about people finding their spark. So, I think hmm. when we think about our values, it's really about finding our spark, our thing. And once we reach that and we feel it and we sense it, you know where you need to go. The rest is noise that you have to still be not checking, but the rest is noise because there is so much more clarity about what's important to you, what's important to your heart. And uh, you learn to just make room for all the experience. You get, I think to me also the process was that I became less attached to the outcome and I became more um, involved in the process.
1: Yeah, that is such a invigorating leap of faith that you can take when you just start to trust the process and guiding your life by what matters and what you know deep in your heart and then kind of just letting outcomes be whatever they end up being. Because even if they're not the outcomes you want in the short term, you don't, you don't have the perspective to zoom out and see how that negative quote unquote outcome in the short term is exactly what you need for the thing down the road. So yeah, it's just such a more um, fulfilling experience to just stay connected to what is in the, in the process of the moment.
0: It's very, very different. I think many times our mind will come with all types of noise and it's easy to get hooked on that noise. Um, But I, 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 think there is something about listening to what comes when we are living our values that it's a very it's a very special experience. I think it's hard sometimes to be discriminated. Um, I know sometimes I get that question from my clients and you know they learn, right? But once you tap into that, I think it's a very it's a very unique shift that you're making in your life.
1: Yeah, it really is. I'm curious when you were you were talking about that your therapist had you do exposures. Like what are exposures for what you were struggling with at that time? Like, what are some types of exposures?
0: That's a great question. So when I started graduate school, I didn't know if I would be able to graduate. I didn't know if I would be able to study in English. I didn't know if I would be able to read that academic paper in English. Um, I had certainly some formal training in in, in um English skills, but it's very different when you're fully immersed in a foreign country where there is a lot of idiomatic expressions and slang, right? Yeah. Um, So at the beginning of grad school, I remember I used to sit in the back of the class. I was sitting on the end um, because I was just scared about becoming the center of attention, right? Um, And I was scared about saying the wrong thing. So I didn't raise my hand. I didn't ask questions, right? I say the minimum enough when I have to engage in group discussions, right? So the exposures were actually one of them was moving closer and closer um, to be next to the instructor, for example. Then I start um, sometimes asking the teacher to repeat some of the things Right, That was another way to just put myself out there. Then I had to say things like asking a question, making three comments, right? The classic exposures that we do when there's social anxieties, right? For me, it was primarily triggered about, about what if I make, my, I make a fool of myself talking in English. Mm. And, and then, right, uh, then I start presenting Right. and I, I tried variations of my presentations with the slides, without slides, writing in the whiteboard, without writing in the whiteboard. So it was just a bunch of micro exercises to really sit with this fear of making a fool of myself, um, and that was extremely, extremely empowering.
1: Yeah, yeah, that must have just made you feel so much more courageous and um, confident in your abilities to just kind of. Accept whatever fears might come along with doing the things that are important to
0: you. Yeah, yeah. I think that it was this sense of, um, I think it's courageous to face our fears. I also think that it makes us humble. It makes us yeah. humble to understand our own experience. It makes us humble to say, I will just do this and see how it goes. Um, and notice that sometimes you have the butterflies in your stomach and your heart is beating faster and you're concerned about the first words that are going to come out of your mouth. I think it makes us humble to experience that without judging it, without criticizing, and just softly holding it as it is and mm. still do what is important, however it comes.
1: Mm. Yeah, so you, now you're you're known as like, I don't know if pioneer is the right word, but definitely a a leader in integrating act and exposure work, uh, together. And as like a side note, um, I'm, I'm currently in a exposure and response prevention training. And when the trainer got to a, uh, um, He's a local, well-respected OCD therapist. And when Mm -hmm. he got to the part around integrating acts, he, he talked about you and just talked about how like incredible your workbooks are and highly suggested that we check them out. So he's really, he's really psyched that you're coming on this podcast and he can't wait to listen to it. So shout out to Ben.
0: (laughs) (laughs) My goodness. Thank you so much, Ben. I (laughs) I appreciate that. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> that's really that's really kind of him and um, that's really kind thank you
1: yeah so did did your own experiences doing exposure help inform you or get you interested in doing you integrating that in your clinical work later on down the road
0: that's a great question right i think the reality is that um there are so many variables that led me to understand what it means to be living by fear and in a culture of fear. Um, I, mentioned, I mentioned in one interview I had a couple of months ago, so I was born in Bolivia in the midst of a dictatorship. Mm. Um, and, and basically, as a teenager, I, saw, I witnessed three military regiments running my country. Wow. And at that time, when I was born, there was a lot of exchange of political prisoners, prisoners between Argentina, Chile, and Bolivia, and you couldn't be um, if you were hanging out in groups. You can only have like three people walking on the street, or maximum of twenty people in a household. There was food distribution, right? So I didn't witness. People killing other other people. Um, however, I did understand very early what it means to believe in a culture of fear. Yeah. Uh, and that happened really through my adolescence, right? Because Bolivia had sadly has a long history of military regiments on and off. The last 20 years has been different. Um, but that is something that has definitely shaped me and understand how my family was related to fears and anxieties. Um, like if you go to see a place, right? Um, after 8 p.m., only two or three people can be walking on the street together. If there are more than three people, they will be arrested, right? Uh, so that's how serious it is. And at 10 p.m., everyone has to be at home. You cannot be on the streets, right? Uh, and when I say arrested, I absolutely mean it. You will be arrested in a second world, can- third world country, and that's wow. not that—that's not a joke. That is not a joke, right? Yeah.
1: So there's so, a real reason for fear there.
0: That's right. It, it was very adaptive, right? We have to yeah. follow actually all these prescriptions about how to behave, right? It kept us alive, uh, but it's a really hard way of living life as well, right? When there is this this container about what's accepted. Right. Um, so that was one one layer for me that I think has influenced a lot of how I think of fear. Um, the second layer is that. I have asked my mom for permission to share this, um, but my mom got divorced when I was maybe four or five years old at a time in which divorce wasn't very well accepted. Right. I think there was this idea that once you get married, you're married for the rest of your life. and um, so that was a very, very interesting experience to witness my mind making that shift, and to also witness how as women, as woman, she was shaped by fear, by fear of disappointing others, by fear of being disrespectful with her parents. Um, so I witnessed that growing up, right? And then when I was maybe a When I was 15 or 16, right, um, I remember, I remember promising myself that I didn't want to live a life driven by fear. I Mm -hmm. remember that no matter how my life goes, when I am 50, 60, I want to look back and say that I did what I really, you know, was eager to do, not that I was afraid and, you know, I wish I had tried. So I think. That was a little bit the beginning of promising myself that I didn't want to live a life dominated by fear or restricted by fear. Um, certainly, I am a human being. And through my life, I experienced a collection of fears, right? Like I, I travel with a collection of fears. Um, it's, true, it's true. When I was, um, I think, 22 or 21, I had my first panic attack. And I remember having this image of dying young. And that has been a fear that haunts me all the time, even today, right? This fear about just dying young, it's a little bit scary to me. Um, And and with time, I think then, then definitely when I came to the States, this fear about making a fool of myself, right? When you are also approaching academic settings or professional settings, right? When if, if you just graduated, it's also this scary thing. What if you, you know, rock the boat, right? Um, so I think throughout my life, I have been experiencing fears inside out. And I also have witnessed how we can make a pivot from those, those experiences and just and become who we want to be. Right. I'm extremely passionate about working with fear based struggles, right? Like whether that's OCD, panic, or social anxiety. Um, fear can generalize quickly into people's experiences. And if you think about uh, the clinical population, if you think about even non clinical population, in life we don't have a single narrow fear. We actually have all types of fear fears about making poor financial decisions, fears about choosing the wrong partner. Fears about not being good enough. So I think it's important for me to help people to handle those fears in a way that gives them a space to be who they want to be. Because in my own experience, I think I know that you don't have to be stuck with anxiety, fears, and worries. Mm. That we are so much more than that.
1: Mm. Yeah, and it's it's so easy, like. For ourselves and the clients that we that come in to see us, it's for your for your reality to get so narrowed in solely on fear or anxiety or discomfort. Like it can almost you can almost be so zoomed in on just one aspect of the puzzle board that you forget that there's like if you step out, there's actually a whole picture there.
0: That's right, that's right. And it's a very interesting emotion, right? It can be easily generalized to many areas of our life. It has a trajectory, right? I think through our life we have different moments in which we experience fear, right? Um, And what I also find interesting is that it really amplifies this natural tendency we have to avoid, right? Um, I don't have any client that is excited about doing exposures, right? It's like it's really a hard thing, right? So I think we won't see that. We don't see those responses with with other emotions as much as we see with fear and the spectrum of fear-based reactions. Right. So I think because of that, right. Helping people or guiding people again to, um, to make room for those experiences has been extremely, extremely energizing in my work. And that's what I think my true passion resides there.
1: Yeah. And it can be such a slippery slope to, thinking that's something you're doing in the short term to get away from fear is helpful and seeing as we know like somebody really in the grips of ocd or a panic disorder that can really get you twisted up over time
0: yeah yeah the avoidance trap right it feels good yeah. in the moment but it's shrinking our life
1: yeah and so that's where the like really develop, to bring it back to early in our conversation, bringing it back to what matters most in our values and letting that be more important than avoiding or feeling certain emotions.
0: Yeah, yeah, that has been, I think that that, if I can step back a little bit, right, in my in my journey, um, I have done exposures, based on the habituation model, right? When you're hoping that there is going to be a decrease of the anxiety, there's going to be a decrease of these feelings. And then an act-based exposure looks very different. So I think once we invite people to answer the question of what makes it worth it for you to face that image, to sit with that emotion when you are driving on the freeway and you're afraid of crashing. Um, once we invite people to answer that question and we also help them and teach them how to develop a new relationship with their thoughts, with all the mind notes that is coming a new relationship with what they are feeling. It's very, very empowerful, very mm-hmm. impo- it's, it's a very different conversation in the room.
1: Mm. Yeah. So could you speak a little bit more to what makes treating OCD or working on OCD with like, with ACT infused with exposure than it would be for maybe somebody who doesn't, a clinician who doesn't have an ACT background?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So what, there are so many things that are different between the habituation model and ACT-based exposure. One of the things that, um, that we try, so exposure, all forms of exposure are about helping a person to approach, sit with, and lean towards all those uncomfortable experiences that have become aversive right? All forms of exposure do that, basically. What's very unique of ACT is that you link that process of approaching your fears to what is important to you, to your values. Um, in my work, that's a conversation that happens upfront at the beginning of therapy and throughout the course of therapy. In the case of OCD, one of the things that I got stuck many, many times is that My clients were extremely savvy. They have read all the books on OCD. They have listened to all types of podcasts. uh, And they know what they need to do, exposures, right? Um, The challenge is that I think helping people to step back and watch the function of their behavior is something that is heavy on act. The academic term is we have to do a functional assessment, right? Uh, How I will translate that for the lay audience is about stepping back and checking if I do X, what happens? And I think that is important in the work of OCD in particular, um, because people have developed a belief systems, a very strong belief systems about how they're supposed to handle anxiety, how every time they have a thought means that it's truth, how every time they have a thought that is coming a lot, it's important How having this image of being a murder makes you a murder, the thought, action, fusion piece, right? So I think when you're blending act and exposure, you are linking all these exposure exercises towards a person's values. But for me, the other piece that you may have seen that in my book, I have a whole section on developing a new relationship with the mind. I think it's important to do some work also before doing exposures to help a person to know this how the mind keeps going on and on to know this how they are holding on white knuckles into these rules yeah. uh, because I have found that if you soften up a little bit the exposures may be actually more impactful for people um, and again I really mean it I had clients that they have gone to my practice and they say I am doing like fixed exposures a day I'm doing all this imaginal exposure the challenge is that if you are using exposure in a robotic manner, because yeah. that's what the book says, or if you are doing exposure because you know it's the thing to do, but they are not looking how you're doing it, why you're doing and what happens after it, you are not going to experience the benefits of exposure. Totally. Right? So I think yeah. for me... For a new client, we will definitely map the OCD obsessions, compulsions, avoidance, safety-seeking behaviors. But I start by looking at how these struggle with these obsessions affecting their life, going to values, and then I do this this um, this preparation for exposure by looking at all the ruling thoughts that they are getting hooked on about thinking, about obsessions, about avoidance. Right? It's very common. We will hear this client say, "I cannot handle it." right? The academic term is that underestimating their ability to cope, right? Um, A lot of that action fusion. So once I work that, to these ruling thoughts, then we develop a values-based exposure menu, and then we start approaching each one of these exercises towards their values.
1: Uh, Mm. But
0: I do think that, and this is just my style, there are so many ways of blending ACT and ERP, right? for me, I wouldn't start with an exposure right away. That's just not what I do because I like to create a context of change to help people to face those fears. In my experience, without that, we are at the risk of delivering technique. And that's what is very different with apt, right? Um, So that's a long response to your question.
1: No, that's great. It's great. I mean, it's it's nice to learn some new things and it's also nice to feel validated and my own intuition on how to blend these two things overlaps a lot. Yeah. And and so maybe going back to your own personal examples in the classroom, the difference might be instead of asking three questions for the sake of asking three questions, it would be really connecting to those moments when you have something important that you do want to communicate and connecting it to something like that instead.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I can... Um, One, I can definitely um, tell you more about it. These days when I am presenting a workshop, when I'm presenting a webinar, I write the first five minutes, there is mind noise. I hear it. I notice it, right? Um, (laughs) And I dance with that in many ways. Um, i'm laughing because i have memories in which i have to over prepare right and i need to have three glasses of (laughs) water. the things that the mind does right yeah um the reality is that every time i give a workshop there is going to be that noise of course my mind is going to tell me that of course right i expect it to come um and what i have there is bunch of things, right? Sometimes I imagine those voices as li- as little ghosts and I imagine I'm holding these little ghosts and putting them on my shoulder, right. And um, over times, I imagine that, that that's judge judge Patricia coming on my disaster forecaster. Um, yeah. but but what is different is that I don't wrestle with them. I literally yes. I hear them, they are there, but i I choose to not give them any attention right? Yes. And i focusing, okay, what's going next, right? I, am I introducing myself in these presentations, right? So that, that shift, um, that it's linked to what is important to me, fundamentally, I want to teach because in my work, I have found something that helps with clients, and I would love to share that. That's what keeps me going. And then, you know, all these voices, right? And the butterflies in the stomach, they just soften up, right? Yes. So that's very different.
1: Yes, I can so resonate with that. It's the same thing, even coming in to do this interview. Every time I go to give an interview, the same radio station in my head plays (laughs) around like, what if I mess it up? What if I'm not prepared? What if they don't like me? And it's just like, it's just like, um, yeah, it's just like something playing on the radio and to sort of debate it and get all caught up in it would be this feel the same to me as if I was getting all caught up in like what people on NPR are saying and like debating them and challenging it so yeah it's just like this this playlist i know that comes on every time i go to do an interview and that's okay
0: that's right that's right we'll to just make room for it right and uh, yeah. I, I think that's a very powerful shift right i think it's hard sometimes to get there uh, but the outcome is that you have so much more energy and enthusiasm to do what matters versus rest spending all that energy in our heads
1: yes yeah. And I mean, sometimes you have to go through your own process too and help clients go through their own process of not convincing them that trying to suppress that doesn't work, but you can just, you, you figure it out experientially eventually.
0: Yeah, that yeah. Like
1: these same stories or same thoughts that show up in these same situations every time there's nothing you can do to make them go away for good. And you can just learn deep in your bones that the game that you're playing just isn't a good game to play.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I completely agree. I have, uh, I feel um, it has been a privilege to see many of my clients, right, go from avoiding and wrestling with their internal experience to sit with them. What I also know is that it's a tough shift because we Mm -hmm. have been socialized that we exist because we think, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. We have been socialized that the more thinking strategies we use to handle everything in our life, the better. But we are forgetting that our mind has a life on its own, that our mind is a content-generating machine. It's a pattern-making machine. It's constantly linking things. So I think it feels counterintuitive many times in therapy when you're actually inviting people to step back, right? Do we really have to respond with more thinking to that thought, right? Do we really have to go into analyzing that thought right now? Is that helpful to you or not? Because we're creating, I think we're Deconstructing this message that the more that you think, the better it is. That actually doesn't help when we're wrestling with our internal experiences. Yes. So, right? So, I think as we have seen people making the shift, that in between gets messy. That in between of deconstructing how we're relating to our mind gets a little bit maddy sometimes.
1: Yes. Yeah. And also to validate with clients too. Yeah. I'll notice this a lot with clients I work with that are like engineers or in math or things like that, that the abilities, the sort of fine tuning that they have with that mind, I call it their power drill is like, it works (laughs) well for them in a lot of areas in their life and has helped them succeed professionally. And the problem is, is when you pull out the power drill for something that does not need a power drill, it's like, like, On the other end of the spectrum, if you're like at a concert and dancing, that's not something you need to think about. But what happens is the mind sort of unconsciously just takes over and wants to use that same tool in situations that need a ruler, you know, a hammer.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's a beautiful metaphor. I love it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. So, And I also want to mention something that I really appreciate about you and your work is you have a really great website. And I've used that as a resource so many times, and I've shared it with my colleagues. And one of the things I really love that you lay out are all the different kinds of mental compulsions, because I think even for people in the mental health field who don't specialize in OCD, don't realize the role that mental compulsions play and how varied they can be and things we think of as just normal, healthy things to be doing can be really, really unhelpful for people.
0: Yeah, yeah. One of the things that um, has been very present in my work and every single thing I do is that I know how it is for a clinician, a mental health provider, to be stuck in the room. Like every single thing I have done, I have written, is because I was stuck at some point. And when we think about mental compulsions, the brain could latch into so many Things, So many thinking strategies, right? Overthinking, figuring out, replaying the past, right? Uh, Praying, things that they seem so benign, but in the context of OCD makes everything worse. So that continuum of mental compulsions, I think has helped many of my clients to really check all these thinking strategies one by one, right? And checking which ones are more prominent when they're dealing with an obsession. So I think... It has been a really, I think it's helpful to have that layout in a very clean way so people can be aware of how they are responding to the obsession in their minds.
1: Mm, wonderful. Thank you. And uh, yeah, and I just want to thank you so much for being here today and the work that you're doing in integrating ACT and OCD, especially for myself personally, is like i really Committed to the act work, and over the past couple of years, have been seeing more and more clients with OCD and getting trained in ERP, and seeing how you've been able to integrate those two things has been really helpful and inspiring for me. So, thank you for your work.
0: That's very kind of you. Thank you so much for having me, and I, I hope that conversation was helpful for your audience.
1: Oh, definitely. Would Would you like to share how people can connect with you?
0: Sure, sure. Um, I am a regular on Twitter. I absolutely uh, love Twitter. <laughs> see, Facebook is for the dinosaur. Instagram is for the cool kids. Like I'm more like a Twitter person. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm usually hanging out there. And my website is thisisdrz.com. Um, and I have a newsletter. It's called Plain. It's Safe. And it's all about sharing weekly Tips, research based skills to handle fear, worries, obsessions, anxiety, and panic. So, those are the things that, uh, yeah, the ways that people can find me.
1: Wonderful. Well, oh, thank you so much again.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It's got me out of my
1: mind. It's got me seeing trees breathe. It's got me learning how heaven and hell are both inside of me. It's got me feeling the love that I bottled so deep When the entire world kept feeding on my grief I know, I'll never know But I can close my eyes, take a deep breath And try to open my soul but Yes I know, I'll never know But I can close my eyes, take a deep breath And try to open my soul but Yes I know, I'll never know but I can close my eyes, take a deep breath and try to open my